If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Heineken Silver. When you discover something you love, like a new podcast or beer, you have to tell everyone about it. So when you try new Heineken Silver, a world-class light beer with only 2.9 carbs and 95 calories, you'll want to tell the world how great it is. New Heineken Silver, the world-class light beer with all the taste, no bitter endings. Available at your local Heineken retailer or for delivery at heineken.com slash silver. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy Heineken responsibly. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. We've all seen films set in the Second World War, where prisoners of war make their escape via subterfuge and subterranean tunnels. But decades before, two First World War officers held captive in Turkey turned to a more unlikely tool to make their escape, a Ouija board. Marguerite Fox's new book, The Confidence Men, charts their story. And she spoke to our deputy editor, Matt Elton, about the remarkable twists and turns in their bid for freedom and what it can tell us about wider beliefs of the era. Marguerite, your new book, The Confidence Men, is absolutely fascinating and chronicles a story that I really hadn't heard very much about until I read your book. Could you just talk us through, I suppose, the context and the headline, the headline most remarkable thing that happens in your story, I suppose? Well, I'm glad you asked that question in that way. I deplore the phrase elevator pitch because it's so Gen Z and glib. However, it has tremendous utility in getting us into this story and in telling listeners where my head was when I first encountered it quite by accident three years ago in 2018. And if I were to make the elevator pitch for the story of the confidence men, it would go exactly like this. In the depths of World War I, two handsome young British officers escaped from a remote Turkish POW camp by means of a Ouija board. And that is literally the story. Now, if I were to make that pitch to a producer or an editor, he or she would think I had lost my marbles. Yet that is exactly what happened in this real-life story. And I think, I mean, that's extraordinary in its own right. Um, I think what's particularly interesting about this story is what it says about the belief systems and the ideas that were circulating at the time. And we'll get onto that in a minute. Could you just sort of situate us in time? Um, when are we uh, talking about and which conflict is is happening as this story unfolds? The story takes place between 1916 and 1918, which puts us, of course, smack in the middle of World War I. One of the things I found so compelling about this narrative is certainly Americans, and I suspect most Western Europeans, most Britons, too, when they think of World War I, they think of the Western Front, all quiet on the Western Front, Flanders Field, poppies. It's what we know, and rightly so. 
However, this story took place in what historians call the forgotten theater of World War I, that is to say, the Ottoman theater. And my two young captives, Harry Jones and Cedric Hill, were captured and taken prisoner respectively in the Mesopotamian theater and in the Sinai-Palestine campaign. So again, uh, this story was really doubly marginalized by history. First, um, there's a whole corpus of prisoner of war escape narratives in hardcovers and on screen, and I love them. Things we all know like Stalag 17, The Great Escape, The Wooden Horse, but what do all those I've named have in common? They are all World War II narratives. Now, plenty of World War I POWs escaped. A number of them even wrote memoirs about it. But for a complex of reasons that can only be guessed at, Hollywood and the publishing industry have tended to ignore POW escape narratives from the First World War. So this story was marginalized in that respect and marginalized a second time for being about Eastern conflict in that war rather than Western. I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about your two lead characters, if we can call them that, Um, because you write that they would never have met had they not been thrown together in these extraordinary circumstances. Um, I wonder if we could talk a bit about their first experiences upon coming to this camp and what they first made of each other. I really felt that my two heroes were heaven sent. One couldn't script a better buddy movie with heroes who come clearly to love each other and who depend on each other for survival, but come from as different social backgrounds as one can imagine. The POW who arrived there first was Elias Henry Jones, known as Harry. He was Welsh-born, raised in Wales and later in Scotland. He was the son of a lord. His father, Sir Henry Jones, was one of the world's most eminent moral philosophers. And the son, Harry, was very well educated. Uh, He had a master's in law from Oxford. And at the time war broke out, he had joined the colonial service and was working as a magistrate in British Burma, which was then administered by British India. And so when war broke out, he was a married man, had a wife, a young baby daughter. He enlisted in the Indian Army Reserve of Officers, and he shipped out of Rangoon, made his way to the Mesopotamian campaign, and he was one of thousands of British and Indian combatants who were taken prisoner after the five-month-long siege of Kut Alamara, one of the most devastating British defeats in history. And he and thousands of comrades were forced marched some 2,000 miles through desert, over mountains, not enough food, not enough water. Scores of men died on the trek. And after two months of this, he found himself in Yozgad, one of the most remote POW camps in Turkey. It's 4,000 feet up in the mountains of Anatolia, One of the things that I found so striking, being a veteran consumer of World War II POW narratives, was that Yozgad 
had no barbed wire around it because the land alone was a deterrent to escape. You had the mountains, you had the desert, there were thousands of cutthroat brigands, many deserters from the Ottoman army, roaming the countryside who would say, you know, stand and deliver, and whether you did or not, they would probably slash your throat and take your purse. And there was something else that was even more of a deterrent to escape. On orders of the camp commandant, an escape attempt, even just an attempt, by any one prisoner would bring down severe reprisals up to and including execution on his comrades left behind. And so being men of honor, the hundred or so officer prisoners interned at Yozgad vowed to one another that they would not try to escape. Yet many, including Jones and his future co-conspirator, the Australian aviator Cedric Hill, dreamed of escape. So the burning, urgent question was, how do you contrive to escape while keeping your compatriots safe? Mm. Um, And what I find remarkable is, in these extraordinary circumstances, this remote, forbidding camp... Um, its inmates turned to all sorts of things to keep them occupied. Um, can you talk us through some of the things they did um, just to pass the time? Absolutely. And in this camp, conditions obviously were not great. It was a POW camp. It was remote. The Ottoman civilians and combatants themselves were experiencing the privations of wartime, so they didn't have good enough food. All of the usual things were missing. But as Jones eloquently says in his own memoir of 1919, The Road to Endor, the most urgent consideration was, how do you get through the day? How do you stave off that crushing boredom and despair that is part and parcel of life in captivity. And little did I know when I began work on this book in 2018, how germane the story of lockdown with depression and boredom and ennui and not enough to do would resonate for us a hundred years on in 2020, 2021. Um, What the prisoners were courting was a psychological malady that would very shortly afterwards be named barbed wire disease. Uh, It was diagnosed and named by a Swiss physician, Adolf Vischer, in 1918, based on his studies of World War I prisoners. And indeed, the things that characterize barbed wire disease are ennui, boredom, hopelessness, nightmares, a lot of the same stuff that the whole world has been experiencing a hundred years on. And so to stave off these feelings of hopelessness and boredom, the prisoners at Yozgad contrived all sorts of entertainments for themselves. They taught continuing education classes in French and Spanish and mathematics. They gave lectures mostly on things that they had done in their civilian lives. As one of the prisoners wrote in his memoir, the most popular lectures were on non-military subjects. We had all had enough of war. And they put on shows. They put on a Christmas panto called The Fair Maiden of Yozgad, which had to be rehearsed 
in secret and performed in secret for one night only because it lampooned their captors in terms that left very little to the imagination. And had they been caught doing that, it would have meant, at best, solitary confinement for everyone involved in putting on the show. So a great portion of every day was devoted just to keeping themselves engaged and going and from slipping into that slough of despond that is a hallmark of life and captivity. Mm, thank you. I think I'm right in saying that it was in February 1917 that the seeds of the idea that was to spring them out, if you like, came. Um, what form did those, those seeds take? An innocuous postcard. Harry Jones, who was in one of the two buildings that were primarily used to house prisoners. He was in a building called Upper House. It should be noted that these buildings with no barbed wire around them had once been private homes. They were sadly conveniently empty thanks to the massacre of their Armenian owners in the 1915 genocide, the year before the British officers arrived at Yozgad. Uh, So in his building, which was known as Upper House, There arrived one day an innocuous postcard from one of his aunts in Britain, and knowing that he and his fellows had a lot of time on their hands, she suggested something they had never before considered, which was that they start experimenting with a Ouija board, which sadly were all the rage again from 1914 on, because bereaved families, often under the influence of rapacious spiritual charlatans were urgently trying to contact their loved ones who had fallen in battle. And um, I think at first you say that it was just uh, taken on as a bit of fun, a way to pass the time. Um, What led to it then becoming something they thought they could use to do something else with, something more practical? It was indeed just a lark. As Jones, who was an inveterate practical joker, wrote in his memoir, it was a rag with no definite aim in view. But the the men loved it, and Jones was no fool. He knows whom do men who've been prisoners and been away from their families for two years want to hear from? A woman ghost. So he, the first ghost he contrived to have spring from This homemade Ouija board that the prisoners jury rigged by hand was a saucy wench named Sally. And um, Jones is such a kind of Edwardian, post-Edwardian gentleman that in his memoir, uh, he just says, Sally had a lot to tell us. He doesn't say what, but she's saying all sorts of things that men who've been without female company for two years want to hear. Jones had a brilliant visual memory, almost what is popularly called a photographic memory. And so he very quickly was able to internalize the position of these random letters of the alphabet that had been placed in a circle around the board. And so he could work the board with his eyes closed. And little by little, over many weeks, he was able to foment belief among a large cadre of his fellow captives that he was indeed able to channel the spirits. It sounds far-fetched to us in the 21st century that people would fall for this, but spiritualism was very much a going concern in 1916, and even eminent men of science, like the great physicist Sir Oliver Lodge, like 
Conan Doyle, who of course was a trained physician, authentically believed that it was possible for the living to converse with the dead. So it wasn't as far-fetched a thing to have people fall for then as it would be now. But all it was was idle amusement until one day in the spring of 1917, one of the captives, a short, stumpy interpreter whose name was Moise Eskenazi, he was an Ottoman Jew, known among the captives as the pimple for his short stature and rather oleaginous mien. And the pimple is one of history's great comic characters. I wanted to get down and kiss the ground in thanks for the pimple when I started reading about this caper. He sidles up to Jones one day and he says, I hear you are a student of spiritism. Can the spirits find a buried treasure? Jones is a barrister. He's trained in persuasive argumentation. He's trained in rhetoric. He knows, as he would say, how to pull the wool over people's eyes. And so he thinks, aha, what was formerly just a lark might, if I'm very careful and very skilled, might be my ticket out of this place. And little by little, the con game starts into which he knows he has to reel his captors with a tale channeled from the world beyond via the Ouija board of a vast hoard of buried gold, buried, well, somewhere in Turkey. The spirits are a little vague about precisely where. There is a set of cryptic clues that Jones and Hill make up and covertly bury in the landscape around the camp that little by little reveal more and more about this imaginary treasure's whereabouts. Jones, at the outset, realizes that the task is too formidable for a single conman, and this is where his wonderful confederate, Cedric Hill, enters the picture. And as we said, Cedric Hill could be not be more different. It took me a couple of years of living with this material to realize that they are the Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn of World War II era empire. Um, they're that kind of brotherly duo, but from very different social classes. Jones, as we know, a lord's son, Oxford educated, a magistrate. Hill never went to university. Uh, he would not have considered himself book smart or an able student, though clearly very, very brilliant, wonderful with his hands. He could do absolutely anything with his hands, including sleight of hand. He was a brilliant amateur, I I would say semi-professional conjurer, as Jones writes, the best amateur conjurer any of us had ever seen. And his conjuring skills had a very big role to play in this long con game that unfolded over more than a year. It was like a living piece of participatory theater, complete with candlelight seances, a hunt for real physical cryptic clues buried in the ground, and the tale of this far-off treasure that would be the captors to share, if only they would lead Jones and Hill far, far away from camp in search of it. And so, of course, the urgent question is, how do you reel them in 
little by little. It's an age-old question confronting any conman. But here, the stakes are even higher, because if Jones and Hill were caught or even suspected, it would have meant a bullet in the back for each of them. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So it took many, many months and all sorts of wonderful trickery and persuasion and sleight of hand by Cedric Hill to reel him in. But when they did, as Jones wrote uh, in a brief essay from the 1930s about the caper, he said, the fish is hooked at last. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I mean, there's so much to unpack there. There's so much going on. Um, I, I suppose, first up, the thing that surprised me was that they were able to leave the camp to plant these clues, because that goes against how we think of these kind of camps. Was that simply because of the way this camp was set up geographically? It's partly because of the way the camp was set up geographically, partly because the guards were very ger- geriatric. They were local men who were clearly too old for proper military service, so they'd been recruited or conscripted to serve as guards. Uh, they were geriatric. Apparently, their weapons were very geriatric as well. Uh, one British memoirist describes them as breech-loading rifles from about 1870. Now, you can still kill someone with that, but it it makes the uh, guard-captive dynamic uh, a little more fluid than it might otherwise be, a little less formidable. And the fact that they were, Jones and Hill were able to plant cryptic clues literally buried a couple of miles away to be dug up later on Ouija-guided treasure hunts by their captors, that fact owes to Hill's ingenuity and brilliance with his hands. One of the things Hill did was he pried up long wooden floorboards from their house, fashioned them into skis, and slipped out and on a skiing expedition, which the prisoners were allowed to go on under guard, managed to evade his guard, just like a a kid on a class trip running off when the teacher is distracted by something else. And he managed to ski away long enough to bury these clues and then ski back. So the incredible enterprise and ingenuity of all of these men, working with nothing, making a life for themselves, whether it's a pantomime at Christmas, a pair of skis, an oven made from mud and bricks in which they can bake cakes for the men of their house. Uh, It's so inspiring and so moving that they under conditions of real privation, managed to make daily lives for themselves from nothing. And what was more, Jones and Hill managed to make 
a con game complete with appropriate props and costumes and everything that the proverbial long con entails, again, from nothing, from found objects. Hmm. So you mentioned there that it was a long con and it took the course of a year. Um, How long did it take their captors to fall for this? And did they at all play it cool? So there's this treasure hunt, there's the the hidden treasure. Did Did they buy it immediately or did it take a little bit of work? It took a lot of roping in and gradual reeling in, especially for the camp commandant, who, of course, is being paid by the Ottoman government to keep 100 British officers under lock and key in a place that had no locks and keys, and uh, was very, very enamored of the nice, soft posting. He was a very upright, older man. Uh, He was an major in the Ottoman army, but he was probably in his 50s, past the age for active service. And so at his age, command of a POW camp in a remote part of the provinces that was considered escape-proof because of the geography, that was a nice soft posting. And he did not want to do anything that would get him in hot water with his superiors in the war office in Constantinople. He was bound and determined not to compromise this nice soft position that he was occupying. So it took many, many months and all sorts of wonderful trickery and persuasion and sleight of hand by Cedric Hill to reel him in. But when they did, as Jones wrote uh, in a brief essay from the 1930s about the caper, he said, the fish is hooked at last. And once he'd got that fish hooked, the idea was that um, these two men would lead their captors to find this treasure. Is is that right? And then make their escape? Correct. The plan was that the the spook as this or ghost who was the one superintending the treasure hunt from the beyond, the spook told the captors, and they even got the commandant to start attending clandestine seances with the homemade Ouija board, candles set in old tins and jam jars illuminating the space at night, because of course ghosts only come out at night. At one of these seances, the spook made clear that there were three clues that together gave the location of this buried treasure. It should be noted that the treasure was the property of a wealthy Armenian of the town of Yozgat, who, anticipating the coming genocide, converted his wealth to gold and buried it in a spot known only to him. He made up three clues that together revealed the treasure's whereabouts. One gave the compass direction to measure, another gave the distance to measure, and the third most vital clue, the spot from which to measure. He gave these three clues to each of three trusted friends whom he expected to survive the war with the instructions, if I don't survive after the war, join forces, dig up the clues, find the treasure, and provide for my family. Well, as the spook went on to reveal, two of these friends were now dead. But happily, it just so happens that Jones and Hill, as spirit mediums, can raise the ghosts of these dead friends and learn where their clues are buried. 
So at a series of seances over months, that's what they did. The object was to get tangible proof that their captors were now complicit with captives. And talk about a firing offense in wartime, probably a firing squad offense. Tangible proof that their captors were complicit with these British enemy combatants. And that proof would keep their Confederates safe once Jones and Hill escaped. So on the hunt for the first clue, which Hill on his skis had buried about two miles from camp, Hill wielding a tiny concealed camera that he had had smuggled in, a vest pocket Kodak, which was the newest new thing, very small, wielding that concealed camera, Hill photographed the commandant and two of his underlings, the pimple and a third man known as the cook. He photographed them in the act with Jones, who's also in the frame, of digging up that first clue. And then he went home, home being the camp, locked himself in a cupboard with some chemicals he'd had smuggled in, developed the film, and indeed he had three negatives on which the commandant was clearly visible. And that was the life insurance policy for all of the other British officers interned there. We'll get on to what happened next in a minute. Um, But something that interests me is that you write in the book that previous accounts have favoured exposition over explanation. And I wondered if we could talk a little bit about um, what sort of intervening century has made us understand about this kind of episode. Um, What do you think it tells us more generally about psychology and human nature um, that these captors were prepared to go on this seemingly extraordinary wild goose chase, if we can call it that? When I first encountered this story through Jones's writings in 2018, the question that most fascinated me, and which I knew I'd have to answer if I were going to reprise this story, was how can this be? How could their captors have fallen for what to us sounds like a preposterous, demented scheme? Escape via Ouija board, through the agency of a spirit-guided treasure hunt. I mean, come on, we would say with our 21st century sensibilities. But I realized that the larger question, which would in turn answer that question, was how does a master manipulator foment and sustain belief? And correspondingly, what makes his converts believe things that are patently false in the face of thundering counter-evidence. And of course, it's no great leap of imagination to see that the answers go a long way to explaining some of the preposterous mass delusions of our own time, that vaccines for COVID rewire your DNA, and therefore you won't take vaccine. And even if it means you'll die. You know, this is, of course, the salient and most newsworthy popular delusion of our own time. We're we're living through it right now. And the reasons that people choose to believe these preposterous ideas have not changed because the human psyche hasn't changed. So our reasons in 2021 are exactly the same as the Turks' reasons, the Ottomans' reasons, 
in believing Jones and Hill's outrageous scheme in 1918. So as much as they're rooted in the desire for answers after the First World War and the rise of spiritualism that happened because of it, you think there are lessons here for us in the 21st century. Would you say that's true? Absolutely. There are de facto lessons and not ones that I had expected when pre-COVID I started work on this book. But without giving too much away, it's very clear that the work of a con man and uh, Jones had studied psychology as an undergraduate. Uh, I think he knew this well, perhaps not in these terms. This is rooted in what psychologists now call coercive persuasion, which we colloquially call brainwashing. And it is uh, depends on the ability of a master manipulator, be he a con man, a cult leader, a political demagogue, an advertising man. It's based on his ability slowly, slowly, so subtly that his marks are not aware of it, to reel people in, preempt critical thinking, and get them to come over to looking at the world in precisely the way he wants them to see it. And of course, that psychological gambit has not changed. If anything, it's only been strengthened with time thanks to the advanced communications media we have now, radio, television, and of course, social media makes uh, false belief run rampant. So uh, I think it's only gotten worse, if anything. Mm. We've left the historical narrative on a bit of a cliffhanger. Um, and as listeners might suspect, there's a, there's a third act to this story. Um, I wondered if you could talk through as much as you're happy to about some of the things that happen next, um, because it's extraordinary in its own right. Yes, indeed. And so, again, the story is heaven sent. It cleaves naturally into a classic three-act structure, And indeed, in Act One, we meet our two principals, Jones, the patrician, Hill, the working-class country boy, the Australian aviator, self-taught magician. Act Two, we see them joining forces and the narrative of the con game taking shape. And just as they are on the eve of success, they are literally about to have their captors willingly take them far from camp to search for the elusive third clue, which of course doesn't exist. We know that. Jones and Hill knows that. The captors don't. They're going to search for this elusive third clue, which involves going 300 miles south to the Mediterranean coast, from which Jones and Hill plan to make a daring escape over the water to Cyprus. They are on the eve of that. Freedom is in sight when something goes terribly, terribly wrong. And it's very much like a caper film, Ocean's Eleven, that whole genre where the bank robbers have worked out when the night watchman makes his rounds. They've worked out the combination to the safe. The getaway car is parked at the curb with the motor running. They're just about to be on the eve of success when something goes wrong. The getaway car gets parked in. There's a flat tire. A cop comes along. So, too, with Jones and Hill, they are betrayed, albeit inadvertently, but a betrayal nonetheless. Suddenly, the entire plan that they have spent a year passionately working on in secret 
the entire plan is blown to smithereens. They have to very quickly come up with a plan B, which is the darkest and most life-threatening turn their story takes yet. Are you uh, happy to give us any clues or should we leave that up to, to readers to find out? Well, again, I'll give you the my despised but useful phrase, the elevator pitch. Their plan B is to go insane overnight. Why? Because if, if, and this is a very remote chance, as Joan says, we were working now at our last hope. Their last hope is if they can convince expert psychiatrists, alienists, as they would have been called then, that they have authentically lost their minds. And of course, each of them, to make it more convincing, has to come down with a different type of insanity. If they can be transported to a big hospital in Constantinople, get certified as madmen, there is the slender chance that they can be repatriated to Britain in an official government exchange of sick prisoners. This is literally their last hope. And so this is where Stalag 17 becomes one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And indeed, they learn through the helpful coaching of an Indian Army doctor who was one of their fellow captives and the only one in whom they confide their plans. He teaches each of them how to be a very convincing madman of a different stripe. They are transported to a hospital in Constantinople and deposited in, as it was known, the mad ward. They expect to spend a few weeks there for various reasons, because various things keep going wrong. They are there for six months, having to sham insanity and fool world-class medical experts every hour of every day. I mean, these men are absolutely extraordinary. Do you think, we've talked a bit about the sort of context of the time and the views and the values that were around at the time. Do you think that these two men are products of their time and that some of their extraordinariness can be put down to that? Or do you just think that in their own right as people, they're just remarkable people? I think it's the coincidence of both. And you hit the two salient nails on the head. I think it was, first of all, product of the time, the proverbials stiff upper lip, but meant in the best way here. Um, you know, the ultimate keep calm and carry on, if we can apply that retrospectively to World War I. Uh, it was that. It was the time. They had both come through battle and capture and the fact that they survived. You know, those experiences hardened them further. But yes, it was very clearly also the individual temperaments of these two very different men, what their backgrounds could not have been more different, but what they clearly both had in common was keen intelligence, tremendous honor, and the willingness to risk their lives for freedom. Mm. Um, What sources did you use? And was there any point at which you just felt like putting the source back down and thinking, this is too much. This is one. This is one twist too far. Uh, happily, no. To answer your second question first, because there was a lot of corroboration. Uh, I came to the story first through an essay that I found entirely by accident when I was looking through an anthology 
for something else. I have a wonderful anthology in my library called Grand Deception, uh, edited by Alexander Klein, published in the 1950s, that's full of delicious essays from a range of authors on all manner of confidence men, hoaxes, impostures, things like that. I was looking for something else for a possible topic for a new book. My eye fell on an essay with the most tantalizing title I have ever seen on a work of nonfiction. It was called The Invisible Accomplice. Well, how could I not stop and read something called that? And it was a brief essay by Jones, our lead protagonist, written in the 1930s, reprising their escapade in brief. And that, in turn, led me back to Jones's book-length memoir, The Road to Endor, published in 1919, just after the war. Hill himself, the co-conspirator, wrote a memoir published posthumously in the 1970s. And happily, there are a number of other memoirs by other prisoners at Yozgadkamp from that time, which corroborated some of these outlandish-seeming details. Uh, These men were not participants in the escape plot. They were not let in on it at the time, but they attended the group seances by which Jones started fomenting belief first among his fellow captives. And again, he was very smart, trained as a barrister. He knew that in order to reel in his captors, he would first have to attain a critical mass of belief among the fellow captives. And since there are no secrets in a POW camp, word very quickly reached the captors that there was this remarkable thing going on in Upper House where Jones was channeling the spirits and receiving messages from the beyond. And that was the point at which the critical mass tipped this harmless practical joke into an earnest attempt at escape. Hmm. Did they did they know that they were being left behind these other prisoners and how did they feel about that? They did not know that an escape plot was going on at all. The only prisoner in whom Jones and Hill eventually confided was this Indian Army doctor, Major O'Farrell, uh, who was a wonderful source of support and counsel when he trained them to be convincing madmen. But nobody else knew, because, of course, the more people know about any sort of clandestine plot, the greater the risk. And again, Jones and Hill were very, very smart. They very rarely made any mistakes because they planned and thought things through and troubleshooted things so very carefully. That was Marguerite Fox. Her book is The Confidence Men. How Two Prisoners of War Engineered the Most Remarkable Escape in History. That's out now, published by Profile, and there's a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow when we've got a panel discussion on the state of history education in 2021.